Hey, Darren, have you been watching us on uh, the Electric Now app? I have. I haven't recently because I, I, I watch you pretty much every week when we're doing these things. But yeah, but, you know, <laughs> it, it's it's you know what I love about it's the Electric be, Now app? It's better it's on so video. It's so easy to use. It's, it's, it's better really on video. Easy. Download got, the app and you watch us. That's all there is to it. It's so and, simple. And a lot of other cool stuff, too. You go to the app store. It says Electric Now. You download it. And then it, in press, the United States, press the button and there it is. There it is. And you can choose, you can bookmark it. There's plenty of other movies and TV show to enjoy and episodes of all your favorite electric surge podcasts. So why wait, download the electric now app and start enjoying us anytime. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Doctorman, And we are the inglorious Trexperts and we're now the hosts of inglorious Trexperts briefing room curated audio commentaries of significant Star Trek episodes from the original series all the way through Discovery. So if you want to check out exciting, incisive audio commentaries with the writers, producers, stars, and Trexperts, you want to listen to Trexperts Briefing Room wherever you get your podcasts. That's Trexperts Briefing Room. That's a separate feed from Inglorious Trexperts. And you can listen to curated audio commentaries with great commentary of some of your favorite and possibly least favorite Star Trek episodes of all time. You don't want to miss this, kids. Give these episodes another ear. It's beginning to feel a lot like Christmas. And it if sure you is. are, <laughs> it is, isn't it? I know. And, and if you're looking for something, the perfect gift for a friend or for yourself, I recommend, maybe you can recommend it because it sounds really self-serving and narcissistic when I recommend it. Um, the wonderful oral history of Star Trek, uh, the 50-year well, mission. Would that be the 50-year mission? Uh, volume one be. and two? Volume one. Now, I want to make an important distinction. Volume one, available now in paperback. Volume two, only in hardcover still. Right. So, But you can get the audio version, get the digital version. You can get them all. Because maybe them you all. want them get all. Get all of them. You know, because that would be ideal. I, I would prefer <laughs> you get them all. If I had my, my druthers, as they say. And then, of course, also... Our other books, which are worth checking out, Nobody Does It Better, also available in hardcover and now in paperback. That's about uh, James Bond, isn't it? How'd you guess? I just it's about James Bond. Because nobody Indeed. does it better, that's why. It's a great book about James Bond. So as you get ready for the inevitable release of uh, No Time to Die sometime in the next decade. There's no time um, to release. <laughs> you want to pick up No Time to Die, again, also available on digital audio and in hardcover and paperback from, uh, from Tor Forge. And uh, if you want to do a deeper dive, check out uh, So So Say We All, our oral history of both Battlestar Galactica series, which is only available in hardcover. And I don't believe there's an audio book. I just think a digital. I'm not sure why they didn't do an audio book. Maybe, uh, maybe, maybe we can I'll, do something about that. Maybe we will. Maybe we'll just record <laughs> our own and we'll, we'll show them. Welcome to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. I am your co-host, Josh Miller, and with me, as always, is Mr. Steven Scarlatta. How you doing today, Josh? I am doing pretty good. How about yourself? Beautiful. Uh, this is a nice... Uh, 
I don't want to say a nice COVID moment. There are no nice COVID moments. <laughs> but for our listeners who know that while we've all been in lockdown and not in our studio here in LA, it's kind of freed up what guests we can get on since it's all just over Zoom. And right now we are Zooming with Mr. Peter Briggs, screenwriter who is currently in London. So it's the beginning of the day for us and the end of the day for you, Peter. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks, Josh and Steve. Um, it's, uh, it's been a very weird and long day for me. Um, I, I went to bed last night at six o'clock doing some writing and uh, I actually don't even feel my days started. So I'm sort of on the LA time with you anyway. <laughs> well, it all works out. Um, well, we've got a lot of stuff we're going to talk about with you. So why don't we just kind of get into it? Um, for those who know Peter, uh, probably best known for working on Guillermo del Toro's Hellboy. But can you tell us a little bit about how you got into the industry? What's your origin story? Well, I guess really, you know, growing up being a fanboy, um, I loved all the Ray Harryhausen's, all the Jerry Anderson's. Um, when Star Wars came out, that changed my life. I mean, you know, I was I was uh, twelve years old at the time, eleven years old, and um, and and I kind of wanted to be in the film industry. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, and I figured. I wanted to be in special effects, you know, I wanted to, you know, make the X-wings and, and, and things explode. Um, and so I, I, you know, devoured um, Cinefex when that came out and Starlog and, um, you know, read Kerry O'Quinn's editorial in Starlog magazine. Um, for those of you who are, you know, of later generations to me, you know, Starlog is a slightly defunct magazine now, I think, but um, back in the 1970s, um, Kerry O'Quinn put this this thing out, um, capitalizing initially on like Star Trek and Space 1999, and then Star Wars, and um, and was the kind of go-to magazine, along with Cine Fantastique and uh, Cinefix and um, uh, Fantastic Films, which was, was a great magazine. I don't know if any of you guys remember that. Um, and and I do. so yeah, yeah. yeah, we we actually had was... a Starlog store in my mall, like for I don't know oh, how long really? that lasted. Yeah, really, wow. Yeah, and, and they wow. sold like um, it was kind of an early precursor. I feel now this is a more common store you'll see where they'll sell the like you know large expensive figurines of like aliens and predators and you know Frankenstein and had some comic books. Um, it was really it was very exciting to see as a kid. Everything there was way too expensive for a child to buy, but <laughs> oh my god, I would have loved that story. I mean, I loved Starlog. I mean, I think that's where a lot of these I projects were announced that were never made. I got obsessed with. I remember reading about Highlander Two, Yellow Knife, and I was like, "What is this?" And then we got the quickening, <laughs> you know. But I always, for years, I'm like, "I got what is Yellow Knife?" Anyway, but yeah, I love Starlog. I, I think we'll get to Highlander later on. Yeah, so we'll, yeah. I, I have a few connections. <laughs> But um, yeah, no, I mean, I would have loved to have had stores like that when I was a kid. I mean, um, for me, it was the the end cap uh, or a spinner rack uh, at my local newsagent. Um, you know, we had very spotty distribution of comic books in England. You know, um, DC was very badly distributed. Marvel, very much so. I was, um, you know, we had a Marvel UK um, when I was very young, which was a, a, a reprint of, uh, you know, all the stuff you guys had. And I remember... Um, sending away, I think I was, I convinced my dad, I was about five or six to send away for um, the Foom membership. Do you remember Foom, Friends of Old Marvel, the, 
oh, fan no. club that, that they had. Yeah. And I sent away to uh, New York. I had to get an international money order. I got my dad to get me an international money order and, um, and waited and it never arrived. And this, this thing just, you know, I, you know, I was bereft about this. And then back in 2006, I was doing a movie with Stan Lee, um, for um, Paramount called Forever Man uh, with him and Robert Evans. And Stan and I went out to lunch and, and I, um, I told him this story about how I never got my food membership. And he sort of, he was eating meatloaf at the time and he sort of like <laughs> stopped on his meatloaf and kind of looked at me very earnestly and said, you know, we always had this one box on the back shelf at stores and we always wondered whose it was. And and I for a moment I, I he was pulling my leg, but it was like for a moment I felt like I was six again. I thought there was my membership kit that, that I didn't get. Um, but so yeah, so I grew up with uh, with Marvel, and, and my favourites were Fantastic Four and um, and Hulk, I think, at that age. Um, and you know all the Ray Harryhausen films. My dad and I would always stop and watch Jason and the Argonauts whenever that was on, and uh, and. You know, we had slim pickings. I mean, there was no VCR in those days. You know, you kind of, you watch broadcast television and that was it. You know, you, you had to make a, a special time to watch this stuff. So, you know, I devoured all, all of these things. And and um, and then, you know, Space 1999 and Doctor Who were kind of my big things uh, as a kid. And then Star Wars came along and, and flipped it all around for me. And so I went through school and, I, and even at that point, I don't think, uh, even though I was highly inspired by Starlog, I don't really think uh, I, I fully understood that I can make a career of it. Um, and, um, and went to a science fiction convention and, and met somebody, um, met a girl, <laughs> as is the way. <laughs> and, uh, and she lived in London and I was living up in, uh, between Liverpool and Manchester. And, um, and, and she started talking about how her friends had gone down to the set of um, Revenge of the Jedi, um, as it was then in 1982. And so I sort of convinced my dad to drive me down to London. Um, and I crashed the set of uh, Revenge of the Jedi. Um, How did one and, get onto a set back then? It, well, I'll tell you, I drove okay. down really early <laughs> in the morning. Um, I, in fact, my, my dad didn't, I, I, you know, it was very strange. My dad and I had, um, had, had gone to see Star Wars and, and we'd seen Empire. And, and I was obsessed with Star Wars, I think it's safe to say. And um, what, one morning, he just like literally turned up in my bedroom at like four o'clock in the morning and just said, get your clothes on, we're going for a drive. And I, I was like, what? <laughs> and I got into the car and we, we, we drove and we drove down the motorway to, to London. And, uh, you know, as I saw London, 150 miles, I was like, where the hell are we going? And, you know, we pulled up at um, EMI Elstree Studios in Borehamwood at sort of 10 to six in the morning, you know, before the, and before the film crew, you know, uh, you know, even started. Um, and, and he went, well, go on. And I'm like looking at this film studio and it's a film studio. And, and I'm like, the security gate is over on one side. And so I thought, what, what am I going to do? You know, I mean, I, I'm here, this is where they make Star Wars. And, and I, I, I walked over to the security gate and nobody was on the security gate. And so I just walked into the studio and um, wow. I, I, yeah. And I, I wandered around the, the alleyways and, 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 uh, um, and I, I saw somebody going into stage four. And uh, I, as I walked down there, somebody else was going to stage four and they held the door open for me. And so I walked in, uh, in there and in my sort of Parker and I'm like 17 years old, 16, 17 years old at this point. 
and desperately trying to look as if I should be there. And um, and I walked into the, the back of the, the, the stage four and the crew were all getting ready. And that, there was this big wooden scaffolding and I had no idea what it was. And and there I you know was, as I found out later, Richard Marquand, uh, the director of, of Return of the Jedi, at the tea trolley, looking over the script with um, the DP and, and some of the other crew. And uh, the, the tea ladies going round going, tea, dear, you know, sort of Monty Python. <laughs> yeah, and she hands me a polystyrene cup. And so I'm holding a polystyrene cup of tea in a place I shouldn't be. And um, I'm edged closer to Richard Marquand. And I, I peer over his shoulder and, and sort of look, and it's the script. And, and I see, you know, um, uh, now uh, your friends have failed. Now witness the firepower of this fully armed and operational battle station. And I'm like, what the fuck? Um, you know, I'm, uh, and I realized that I'm that, that this is a Death Star and I'm on the Death Star. And so I sort of walked up the set. Um, I walked up the, the scaffolding and, and I'm in the throne room and I walked, you know, you know what it looks like. So yeah, I walked down that, um, I walked down that walkway and up the steps and over to the throne. And um, there on the throne is Luke's lightsaber. And, um, and, and, and I'm standing there. And, and I'm like, what, what, I'm, I'm on the set of Revenge of the Jedi. And suddenly, out of nowhere, Dave Tomblin, the second AD, comes over to me and, and, and he goes, oh, excuse me, sir, um, uh, uh, who are you? And I said, I'm, I'm Peter Briggs. And he goes, oh, what, uh, what, what department are you with? And I said, uh, <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a chippy. Uh, you know, I'm a carpenter. And he went, oh. And he, and he, and he turned around and walked away. And this one of the stagehands like leaned into me and grinned and went, "You're not a chippy," <laughs> and you know I've got, I'm like, "No, no, no shit." Um, and uh, and he goes, "Look, you know he's going to be back in five minutes' time uh, or less, and you're going to be thrown out of this set." He went, "Come with me," and he took me and and he he sort of led me down the steps back out of the throne room. And as I'm coming out, Mark Hamill comes in in his black uniform. And I'm like, oh, it's Mark. Out. Oh, goodbye. There's Luke Skywalker. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> uh, and uh, and, and I, I walk, and we walk out of stage four, and that's 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 me. Me finished on the the Empress throne room. And he said, look, you know, the, um, stage five's over there. Stage six is down there. Stage nine's over there. There's sets on them. Don't come back here, but go enjoy yourself. And you know, this one, this stagehand just basically, and you know, had told me where where to go. And so I walked down to stage six, which was the Star Wars stage, and um, and. Uh, and there on it, it was the Death Star um, docking bay with the Empress shuttle. And so I, I climbed up the back of the Empress shuttle um, to an area that you don't really see in the film, but uh, it's actually all outfitted out with um, with purple upholstery. And there was an overhead panel. Um, you don't see any of that in the film, but I sort of remember what it looks like. And there's been a few still since. So I can sort of you know imagine me in it. I walked down the ramp of the shuttle and I had that docking bay all to myself. It was kind of crazy. Um, and then I came out of there and, and walked to stage five. And on stage five was uh, home one, the, the, um, the rebel Admiral Akbar's uh, uh, control center. Um, so I sort of, and that was interesting. That was an interesting step because, you know, most, as you'll know, most film sets are kind of um, open walled to uh, allow access, but that was a closed set. So you walked onto it. It was like being in a spacecraft. It was totally self-contained. Um, so I wandered around Admiral Akbar's, uh, you know, I sat in Admiral Akbar's seat um, and, uh, and then came out and went over to stage nine. And on stage nine, there was a couple of X-wings and, and a Y-wing and an A-wing. And, uh, and there's this box in the corner. And I, I, I was curious. And I wandered over to the box and I kind of like looked 
peeked into the box and I sort of gasped and I climbed into the box and that was the cockpit of the Falcon. So I'm sitting in, in the in Hans chair and I and, and I pull the hyperdrive lever. And uh and and yeah, so I, I kind of wandered back up to um back up to you know, I had some hours to kill and I, I wandered back up to um stage six and 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 uh you know, I wandered around a few of the scenic docks and Luke's land speeder was in one of them. There was a box with the Ark of the Covenant in. Um <laughs> Yeah, I know. I found the Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> uh, it, it was there all along. <laughs> and um and 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 you know and i i and i guess just before lunchtime I, I you know a few hours oh and i i went around the back lot and i took some photographs um with a camera i'd taken i stupidly didn't take photographs of any of the sets i was so overcome by being on the sets i forgot to take photographs and um but i took some pictures of the back lot and uh i had some photographs of the falcon that years later Lucasfilm had um, a website called Hyperspace, where, which was the fan club uh, website. And they wrote to me and they said, hey, we know you've got some, we think you've got the very last photographs that were ever taken of the Millennium Falcon. Would you mind if, if, uh, if we, we published them? And so, you know, I thought it was hilarious that, I, you know, I'd illegally climbed onto the set and taken <laughs> photographs. And now they were sending me a, 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 um, a release, a, an official Lucasfilm release in order to take photographs I should never have had to begin with. Um, so they went up and, and uh, yeah, so I, I came out of the studio just before midday and my dad looked at me and went, okay. And I went, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and we drove home and, and I, that was me. And I actually, uh, I, I uh, did this process a couple of times. I did it the next year on Temple of Doom. Um, there's actually oh a bit in... in yeah, um, if you remember when Indy is um, when Indy's just escaped from the Temple of Doom and and he's uh, he he's on the cliff face and he's holding onto the the wooden shafts and the water's pouring out and I I was actually there on the, uh, hiding in the grass on the on the studio lot and <laughs> and there's a shot in the making of on in on the DVD box set where if you come around and it, if the making of cameraman had stepped back one foot he'd have stood on my head in the grass uh, right <laughs> behind him um and and i i did it i was just sort of in you know i was i was bitten at this point you know i i kind of i, I that was the point i think i i knew i wanted to to make films and um and so i moved to london just after um the jedi uh crash and um and got a job working as a um a runner really at a commercials house in soho and I did all the terrible jobs. You know, I made the tea and I wallpapered the walls and cleaned the toilets. And in the process, you know, they allowed me to do other things. So they, I, I got taught editing on a 16, 35 millimeter steam back. I used an Oxbury animation stand. I learned very uh, early um, video editing. And, um, you know, after a few years, I, I got my uh, union card as an assistant cameraman, um, just in time for the, the collapse of the British film industry when, Canon Films came in, they bought up Elstree Film Studios, they bought up a ABC cinema chain. And when Canon Films sold Elstree Studios uh, to a supermarket chain, um, the sound stages were destroyed. And it, and it was just, it was a bad time for the industry. And, and so I was doing stills photography, I work in a stills company, um, and just doing what I could to to make a living um, as, a, as a sort of very young kid. And... Uh, by this time, we were, my oh God, I think we were 1989, I, I suppose. And I'd been writing, I started writing scripts for myself just for fun. Um, one of them was a Dirty Harry sequel. 
Uh, I wrote that with a friend of mine, Nick Templin, in, it was Dirty Harry Goes to London, basically. Uh, and it was called Total Recoil, um, uh, which I thought was kind of a cool title, Total Recoil. I mean, this is before Total Recoil. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and I wrote a thing with a guy called Mark McCrory called Radio Calling, which was about um, a Chicago radio station. It was, it was a really kind of crazy Robert Zemeckis I want to hold your hand, use cars, kind of slapstick, hell's a popping type, you know, thing. Um, I did a computer thriller called Nightfall, which was, you know, pre-internet. I mean, bear in mind, the internet wasn't around till, you know, uh, properly till uh, 96 in, in the form of a web, worldwide web browser. And I wrote this thing, which was about a computer program that could hack all software. And I, it was roughly the same time as War Games, I think I wrote that. And... Um, and then I did a, an adaption of uh, a book by Robert Mason called Chicken Hawk, which was about helicopter pilots in the Vietnam War. Um, and I, oh, that's before I even had an agent. Yeah, before I even, I, I actually recommend all writers um, should do this. I think that they, you should get a, a favorite book, you know, a book you really like and sit down and adapt it. Not, you know, not with the purpose of, of anything other than learning your craft. And because, you know, somebody has already sat down and if the book is, if the story is successful, if the story works, you already have a beginning, middle and an end. Um, and what you're doing in the process of, of, of adapting that book is it's, it's stagecraft. You know, you're learning, you're learning where to put your slug lines. You're learning how characters speak. You know how transitions do. And I, I do script consultancy now um, through a company called Script Reader Pro. And I, I sort of deal with a lot of upcoming uh, and young writers. And I, I also work um, um, freelance as well for uh, anyone who wants to get in touch with me. Um, so, I, you know, I, I'd been trying to, to do this and I, I bought these books and Michael Haug's book was, you know, was, you know, it told you how to do a cover letter and, and how to do this. There was no internet, as I said, in those days. So I went down to, you know, the coffee shop you know, back in the days, I think, are there still coffee shops anymore? I don't know. Um, and, uh, and, and, uh, and I printed out dozens of copies of my screenplays and, and just, you know, used shoe leather. And I, I had a list of the agents in London and I took them around. And, um, you know, I, I had a couple of smaller rejections from some of the smaller agencies. And one day I, I came down, uh, I was living in a small um, apartment in um, North London. I came down um, to get my mail in the morning and there was the usual junk mail and on the carpet were two envelopes and one was from ICM um, and the other was from William Morris and I kind of I thought oh okay here's here, here are the big rejections and so I opened the ICM one and, and it said hey could you give our office a call we'd like to talk to you about representation and I was just like you know totally gobsmacked um, and and I was like wow they 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 like my work and i opened the second envelope and that was william morris and um they also said the same thing and so i'm i've suddenly gone from getting you know rejections from smaller agencies to two of the biggest agencies in the world at that time wanting to talk to me about representation so i i went and had the meetings and um there was an uh, an, an irish guy i won't mention his name uh, at icm uh who um talked a good talk and I went to meet um, uh, the, uh, the head of William Morris, Steve Kennis, um, who was a big brash um, uh, guy from Chicago with a cigar. And he was, you know, he looked like your 
average um, you know, 1950s uh, stereotype Hollywood film producer stroke agent. And, um, and, and, and I don't know why I think that, you know, because he was like that, I, I kind of was a little scared in a, in a way. And so I went with the, the other guy, I went with the Irish guy, ICM, and spent a year with him and um, didn't really enjoy that experience. Um, but he did put me up for uh, a job working for the newly created Paramount UK. Now, at that time, there was one of the first of the Writers Guild strikes. And um, I suppose what had happened was that Paramount had realised that, you know, when, when the Guild goes on strike, that you can't, you know, you're either looking at your backlog of uh, scripts from uh, that you've accrued over the years, um, or you're going to have to go to somebody outside the Guild. And so they very savvily created this um, this company, Paramount UK, um, to develop material. And my guy at ICM put me in there. And, and so I was developing uh, science fiction material for Paramount UK. And, and my boss, um, a lady called um, uh, Eileen Maisel, um, didn't really know science fiction material. And, and so I was bringing her, you know, comics like 2000 AD, you know, um, some of the things in the Strontium Dog and, you know, things I grew up with from my childhood that I thought would make good movies. And and other things, you know, I, brought, I remember I brought a Rocketeer and, and she she told me that, you know, Disney were, were, had already gone into production on that, which I didn't know. Um, and uh, and there were there were cyberpunk things. I, you know, I was a big fan of William Gibson at the time. So I was bringing a neuromancer, lots of lots and lots of stuff. But the, the tipping straw for me was after a year of doing this, when I brought her Starship Troopers and she was like, ah, nobody wants to see that old 50s Heinlein crap. <laughs> and and the next week, TriStar picked it up for, for Hoven. And I just thought, this is going nowhere. You know, I'm spinning my heels here. Um, and and I, it, there was a rainy Saturday afternoon uh, in Camden Town in North London. And um, I was going to a comic book store called Mega City One, um, which is <laughs> named after, if you know your Judge Dredd, is named after the city in, in the, the Judge Dredd movie. And, and I, I came in out of the rain, soaking wet. And there on the end cap was... Alien versus Predator issue zero. Um, and so I kind of like looked at it and it's two of my favorite things. You know, I'm, if I can backtrack again, you know, I mean, when I saw Star Wars in, in um, 78. I mean, you guys all saw it in 77. Uh, it wasn't released wide in Britain until like February 78, January, late January, early February 78. And so you know, I'd been waiting for that movie for seven months. I knew everything about Star Wars, you know, and 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 uh, and then the same thing happened like a year later. Starburst magazine, which again was sort of like mm. the British uh, version of Starlog, Starburst had some very early Ron Cobb illustrations from Alien, and I, you know, as I was already you know crazy about Star Wars, I became crazy about Alien, and I knew everything about Alien before, you know, that film opened, and my I was. God, I, I was like 14, I think, at the time. And my, my Uncle Eric um, sneaked me into uh, the cinema, um, you know, because it was a what, what's called an X at the time in Britain, which, you know, is the equivalent of an 18. Um, and, and you can't even have, you know, there's, there's no, uh, it's, it's not like in, you, know, you can get accompaniment. It's like you, you're 18, that's it. There's no, there's not, no adult with you or anything, you know. But he snuck me into that, and I was—I became obsessed with Alien. So, um, you know, my two of my favorite things were there in that comic, Alien and Predator. 
and uh, and I, I looked at it. I, I, I bought the comic immediately and I walked across to a pub called The World's End, which is right opposite. And I bought a Guinness and I sat down with my, my Guinness and I, I read uh, this, this comic and I thought, hey, you know, this is pretty good. What a great idea. Um, you know, if, and, and the next couple of issues came out. And by this time, I, I'd sort of sat at the back of my mind and I, I thought, you know, if I can write, um, if I can write a, an adaption of this, uh, you know, not not to sell, just as a as a as a spec script, just as a just as a, a sample. You know, it might be good enough that you know it might get me into Joel Silver. Now, at the same time, several other things happened, which were that um, I was friends with a Finnish film journalist uh, called um, Johanny Nermi, and Johanny. Um, uh, and I got to know each other again through Starlog because the crazy thing about Starlog was back in the day, they printed your full address <laughs> in the letters <laughs> column of Starlog. Now, you can imagine the stalkers you, and, and crazies and loons yeah, that were pretty. And, and in fact, I actually did get some hate mail over the years through, through Starlog magazine, which was hilarious. <laughs> <No> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and, um, yeah, I remember like, I, I, I very, you know, I was a kid and I very pompously was like, um, you know, oh, for my money, Rocketeer is far greater than, than Terminator 2 this summer. And, and, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and boy, the hate mail I got from that. Um, and, uh, and, and, uh, yeah, so, um, we, Johanny and I had become friends and he, um, lived in Finland and he was, uh, you know, Finland's a small place, and he got to new Rennie Harlan. And Rennie um, was going to be uh, directing Alien 3. And in fact, Johanny and I got Giga onto, because Johanny, again, was, he's a, he's a crazy character. Um, um, you know, he, he's uh, writing screenplays now with, with, uh, with a couple of film directors. And, you know, he was Finland's biggest film journalist at the time. And, um, and we got Giga onto Alien 3. Um, and and so I was I decided to start writing Alien versus Predator, and all my friends mocked me. And boy, did they mock me! They were they were like, "Why are you writing this? Nobody is ever going to see it. You know, it's going nowhere. You you can't do anything with it. You don't have the rights. You know, this is just stupid." Um, and and I uh, because we got um, Giga onto Alien Three, you know, uh, Rennie uh, left the project, and you know, various other directors came on board Vincent Ward um uh, you know came and went and and it was eventually Fincher but I managed to wangle um a, a visit to the set of Alien 3 and I so I went down to Pinewood I drove down to Pinewood and uh I met with uh Alec Gillis and uh Tom Woodruff you know, the company Amalgamated Dynamics were doing the the creature work for Alien 3 and um and and they were like, oh hey, let's 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 show you around the creature. So I, I got to see the, the creature shop and, and saw the alien, that was all great. And then they sat down and they regaled me with some horror stories from the shoot, and it was clear that that, that film was in trouble. Um, and uh, they said, So, you know, what's your story? And I said, Well, oh, I'm you know, I'm I'm trying to be a writer. And they said, Really? And I said, Yeah, I've I've just got an agent and you know, I'm I'm trying to they said, Well, what are you writing right now? And I said, Well. And there was a long pause, and I, I said, "Well, actually, I'm I'm doing Alien versus Predator," and 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 both of their faces like just dropped. 
and uh, like 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 amazement just for a, just for a second and then they started roaring with laughter and i went <laughs> oh man oh man. yeah we can't see that happening that's never gonna happen which is <laughs> hilarious in retrospect because <laughs> you know in 2003 they ended up being the guys who would do who did the creature work on alien vs. yeah i was gonna say i so, think woodruff played uh <laughs> one of the creatures in the movie too oh yeah tom tom was always the guy in the creature suit like he was in um pumpkin head mm-hmm. and yeah yeah he, he he always wears the the alien suit and he's he's always been you know good sport about it um but um so and they were like really alien versus predator and i said yeah and you know predator 2 had just come out and 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 i said you know have you seen predator 2 and they said no we've been too busy we haven't had time to go see it yet and so i told them about the trophy case scene at the end where danny glover goes into the predator ship and there's the alien skull um and there's uh you know i don't know if you guys know this but if there's a there's there's a bunch of interesting other skulls in there and i think chris wallace um who was like one of the one of the guys on the, on the movie, I think he put the um, the Drax skull from Enemy Mine in there. Oh, I think that's one of the, I never yeah, noticed. I think that's that. one. Of, I think that's one of the the ones in there. Um, and uh, and and anyway, you know that was that was that. So I, I you know came back from my my, my trip to Pinewood uh, suitably buoyed, and and I, I finished uh, the script. And and at this time, I decided to jump. I decided to jump ship from ICM. Uh, and I, I called up Steve Kennis at William Morris and I, I said, look, um, you know, you, you very kindly um, said that you're interested in representing me a year ago. Um, are you still interested? And he said, yep. And I, and I was like, okay. So I left ICM after a, a year where a fruitless, um, uh, you know, spinning at Paramount UK and, and um, finished this draft. And, and, and it was the first thing I took into Steve and he said, uh, and I went in for this meeting with him and, and, uh, and he said, okay, Briggs, what do you got? Uh, <laughs> and I, I put the, I put the screenplay on his desk and, and he pulled it towards him and it was upside down. He turned it around mm-hmm. and he looked at it and he went alien versus predator <laughs> alien versus like, like, uh, like, Oh my boy, I'm so disappointed, you know? Um, and he goes, Pete, Pete, you know, have you any, idea how difficult and this is from the head of William Morris how difficult this will be to sell and I sort of shrugged and made vague noises and he goes he looked at it and he looked at me and he went look I'm good friends with Larry Gordon you know we go way back I'm going over to the states next week um I'm going to go meet with Larry and and we'll 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 have a talk about it and I was like oh okay and um it was summer uh, it was late summer it was just coming into into fall and I, I uh, you know, I like to sort of make model kits when, when, when I've, I, I finished the script. It's sort of like a, a weird little, um, little thing. I don't do it anymore. I wish I, I did, but I, I don't have the time anymore, unfortunately. But I was making Ripley's power loader um, at, at the time, so I was making, <laughs> making, making this power loader kit. And, um, and, and Steve flew across to Los Angeles. And the first inkling, I guess, I got that something was uh, awry was uh, he called me. Yeah, this is the day before uh, this is the time before cell phones before the internet and and he calls me um this is like late 1991 this is like um i guess the third week of september beginning of october and he calls me from the payphone at lax having just flown over uh, uh, i guess in first class and i guess after enjoying um you know a, a great deal of alcohol uh, and he, he calls me and, and and says pete pete i just read your script on the flight i gotta tell you i just wanted to 
greatest, best things I ever read. And, uh, you know, and, I hope somebody was driving him from the airport that day. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and uh, he said, okay, right, I'll be calling you in the week. Uh, I'll, I'll let you know what happens. Okay, bye. And uh, off, he, off he went. And, and I carried on making my model. And then I guess about four days later, five days later, um, about 20 past five in the afternoon, uh, 9.20 Los Angeles time, he calls me. And, said, uh, and uh, I used to have a landline in the in the hall at the time, and the, the phone went, and it's Steve, and, and he's like, Peter, hey, how are you doing? I'm good, Steve. You know, where are you? I'm in the hall. You know, uh, uh, can you sit down? I went, yeah, sure. He goes, sit down, and so I dutifully sat down on the, on the on the steps, uh, and they said, I just sold your script, and I went, and, and I it was like. I, 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 I remember like, uh, like the entire world sort of focused down to like the, the, the middle of my eyesight and everything around it and we went, went gray. And he went, I went, what? He goes, met with Larry. Uh, Larry had just uh, been talking. You know, Larry Gordon used to be the head of 20th Century Fox and he left to form a company at Universal, but he still had a, a first look deal at Fox. And um, uh, Joe Roth was the head of Fox at the time. And um, by some freak of, of, you know, serendipity, Joe Roth had asked Larry Gordon to come up with um, uh, an Alien versus Predator project. And Steve walked it in through the door and, and, and they read it and they liked it. And, um, and I sold the script overnight. That's um, and that was it. Yeah, that and that's it. Yeah. Crazy. It's a story that doesn't happen. Yeah. You know, and um, it happened. Wow. I mean, it's not supposed to happen. That's the extra <laughs> no. crazy part. Um, well, I didn't. I didn't have the rights. Yeah. I had, you know, if that if that had come across the the desk, probably with a junior reader or something, um, it would have gone straight into the. You know, it's like you know, it's that scene in Trading Places where um, where Dan Aykroyd walks into the pawn shop and and you know he he gives his watch across and and. Uh, the, the black guy behind the the, the, uh, the desk goes mm, burn my fingers you know you know and just like push <laughs> yeah. it. well it that, that's exactly it you know that script would burn you know nobody could read it because of the, the litigious nature of lawsuits but um you know it was just down to you know i i'd written it um the, the they'd asked them to come up with it you know i guess they probably would have gone into development hell you know i guess they probably would have you know mm-hmm. developed this material with probably some a-list writer or, or something um and it you know maybe the scripts would have been good maybe the scripts wouldn't have been good um but i guess probably what happened next would still have happened um which was that the project went into turnaround well before we get to that part i guess i'm a little curious and i realized it was a while ago um if you can really remember any of your thinking in adapting it, because I guess just for the listeners, we don't need to get in a ton of detail about the script because I'd say, uh, well, one, I should note, I really liked the script. I thought it was pretty great, actually. Yeah, same here. Um, I loved it. And Well, you know, that, you know that the version you guys read, I, I guess if you grabbed it from one of the websites, um, there's three pages missing from the end of it. And nobody oh. ever notices. <laughs> uh, yeah. There's like three three pages in the alien nest, and and with a few cuts to stuff going on outside, where where the the page count just jumps. Um, and uh, yeah, it's. Uh, but here's here's the interesting interesting thing. Um, I don't know. Well, 
let me recap. Wired Magazine um, got in touch with me back in 2000, I think it was, and said, look, we'd like to run a little piece on this because, um, you know, that script got pirated off, uh, I, I guess, you know, when the World Wide Web happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, so we're talking sort of 96. And when did you guys read it? When did you come across it? I, I came had across- it. Yeah, Steve's had it for a long time. I just read it over the weekend. Yeah, I've, I had it. Uh, yeah, it was probably one of the first um years and years ago there was a site that's no longer around where i used to collect all the unmade drafts and they mm. they got taken down but i originally heard of it like i was in an i was working in an office gig on ain't it cool news they did like a huge write-up of the whole thing that's when i first heard of it and i was like whoa what is you know and then eventually i i hunted it down on that website it's, i've had it for years and yeah it was yeah, I, there's, there's the shocking thing about the script is like when you're reading it, it's like how much stuff in there was so ahead of its time that you would eventually see leaked well, into other And what movies. I liked about it too, because like for me growing up, I I feel like I never quite came across the Dark Horse comics when they were new. My introduction to the AVP franchise was in the early 90s, they did a novelization version of the comic book. And I somehow this is the, This is the that. Steve Perry novelization, right? I think so. Uh, I don't have a copy. I, I was like, do I still have that in like a box somewhere? And I'm actually kind of bummed I don't. But then well, I'll, I, tell you something, I'll tell you something funny about the Steve Perry um, uh, novelization. Yeah. I, because I read it. Um, now, I mean, obviously, if you've read the comic books and you've read the script, the kind of, the, the two different animals. I mean, I, I'm not ashamed to say I ripped it off. Um, you know, because I did, um, but you know, I didn't rip it off in a in a plagiaristic sense because it, this was never intended to be a screenplay. This was just intended to be a writing sample to get my foot in the door um, somewhere. But what I just found that the um, I found that the comic book, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, because you, you, there was the issue zero, which was that they, they was published in uh, Dark Horse Presents, which was uh, an anthology. Uh, book that came out was it every month or every two months and it had lots of different kind of like little things from you know there'd be a concrete story and there'd be a a whatever story you know from from all of Dark Horse's other titles and um, so I I can't remember if they they, uh, I can't remember if I was aware of the the issue zero um I must have been. I, I, I'm, I'm a little vague. It's like 30 years ago, so my, my head is vague on this. Um, and but, but you know, the, the one that was in Dark Horse Presents was like a little standalone story where the uh, egg pods land on the planet, and there's a there's a hunt through a sort of swampy um, swampy grove, and it's 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 a nice little piece. But then the 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 actual story itself, the the actual original, you know, Randy Stradley, um, uh, Chris Warner. Um, Phil Norwood, um, Alien versus Predator story starts off with the two guys in the spaceship having a conversation, and they're going to Ryushi, the planet um, which has been, you know, colonized and it's a desert world. And you get there, and there's the, the there's um, Machiko is a name. There were things I really liked in the draft, but there were the in the I beg your pardon, things I really liked in the comic book. And you know that the comic book is great. I mean, it's great fun, but it. The, the predators are really savage and really violent in it, and I, I felt that some of the, some of that predator to predator kind of ethic of of them um, uh, was not quite 
in place for me. And so I, I wanted to change a little of that. Um, and and I, I just, first and foremost, didn't really want to set it on a desert world. I mean, you know, every time you sort of see a, you know, a science fiction movie that's done on the cheap, it's sort of set on a desert world. I mean, Star Wars aside, of course, but, you know, <laughs> which, you know, you've got varying different planets in, in that universe. But it's like, you know, every time there's a space hunter or, or a, you know, a metal storm or, or whatever, it, it's, a, it's a desert, you know, because it's all shot outside Los Angeles, you know. Uh, and I wanted it to kind of be, a, a, you know, putting aliens in bright sunlight isn't very noir. It's not very shadowy and, and you know, interestingly, I mean, I, I, I'm looking forward to the new Predator film, um, the new, uh, what's, what, I, what's it, uh, it's called Skulls at the moment, isn't it? Um, with, with, with the uh, Indian, uh, American Indian uh, girl, um, facing off against the predators so you know that will be interesting but that's a predator I mean, you know it's cloaked and there's a there's a there's a lot you can do with that but aliens in a in a in a desert environment didn't really excite me and so i thought well what other what can i put it in that's going to be different and and to me a swamp world kind of you know a swamps are kind of kind of spooky and kind of kind of dangerous and so i had this installation that was no no longer a, a colony as it was in uh, in the comic book, um, and I thought, okay, so what's the rationale behind this? And, and it's like, I you know, I I it couldn't it could be it could have been anything you know. I didn't want to do a mining operation because that was in Outland, you know, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> you know. I I uh, and so I thought, okay, it's a relay station. Uh, you know, they're they're just basically acting as engineering for, uh, uh, you know, because I figured out how do you communicate in, in, in the alien universe, you know, uh, uh, do, do you, you know, bounce signals? And so I came up with this kind of communications relay thing. Um, and, you know, the, there, are, um, there are elements in, obviously from the script that are in there. You know, I, I do have a, a Japanese head of, of the company. You know, I do have um, a bunch of, Good old boys out in the uh, out in the wilds who get attacked by the predators. Um, you, you know that the, the the aliens do take over the facility. You know our girl has to make it from point A to point B. She teams up with the predator, but um, you know it, it would. Be, you know I I think it's fair to say that while I did definitely rip off elements from it, um, it was more inspired by because I I don't really feel that the, the I mean you tell me I mean. What's your, I mean, what's your, your guys' just, observation of it? Well, I was going to note about it, I guess, for those, especially for those who don't even know the comic franchise, uh, let alone your script, just the basic concept is that there's a planet that the uh, predators will go and drop off alien eggs so they can hunt them. And which is genius. Yeah. And, and, you know, you know, God bless Dark Horse for coming up with that idea. <laughs> and that meanwhile, on this planet, Ryushi, uh, humans have colonized it and kind of get caught up in the uh, crossfire. And yeah, Hiroku Noguchi is our hero. And she ends up by the end teaming up with uh, Broken Tusk, who is kind of the lead predator, so-called, because one of his little Tusk Fangs things was broken off years ago in a battle. Um, and I guess what I was going to say is that uh, what I like about yours and not, you just don't need to go in a rabbit hole talking about the movie they did make, but that 
this at least this oh, oh we, we, like we should the... go in, we should go into that because there is some good stories there <laughs> but i was gonna say but I, yours feels very much uh the adaptation you would want if you mm-hmm. liked the comics or the novels like i did i was like yes this is the world i was expecting us to see played in while yeah well as you know you weren't necessarily following the exact beats from that original series it's kind of no i was making making up fun scenes that i wanted to see i mean i did like the um like in, in the comic book, that I, I had a very, very tenuous kind of thing. In the comic book, um, there's the uh, rhino stampede, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was a great idea. But, you know, uh, this is now no longer a ranching out, outpost. So uh, I think in my script, I've got them they're tagged for a migration project or something. Uh, it was really tenuous, but I wanted to have, have that in there. Well, um, my favorites, I think one of my favorite scenes in your script, um, which is funny because... Uh, I feel like a similar scene ended up in the movie Jason X, but I feel when we meet Noguchi, she is training in like a, you know, Star Trek holodeck like scenario. Oh, she's got a holographic swordsman. Now that was something I, I put in there just because, I, you know, as, as I said, I was sort of reading a lot of um, Eric, Eric Van Lusbader books at that time, um, like the Miko and the Ninja. And, and, uh, and I was sort of fascinated by, you know, samurai stuff. And I just figured, Hey, she's Japanese. Maybe she's got a sword. What would she? How would she be training? Well, maybe she's training with a holographic sword. So I put that in there, and I was kind of startled when I read Steve Perry's novelization that he took that from my script. Um, which oh, was I was going to say, but and the payoff is that later in the movie, um, some aliens are like after her, and they wind up in the holographic room. And the, yeah. you know, samurai start coming up, and the aliens are confused because they don't know that they're not real. Uh, and it's just a cool, cool sequence. I think, we- it, well, it's funny you should say that because I think I cut that from the second draft. <laughs> oh, really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we yeah, have your first yeah. draft then. You do. The, the, I yeah. don't even know that I have the second draft because I wrote this thing on uh, an old computer called an Amstrad CPM, and it had its own proprietary disks. Um, I'm not even sure if I, I, I think I must have the disk somewhere, but I'm not, I no longer have the computer. It's not proprietary. It doesn't run on anything. Um, which, you know, it's funny because I see, uh, you know, when people talk about restoring, uh, episodes of TV shows and things, you know, uh, formats and, and machines that they once wrote on, they now no longer have access to. So they have to go on sort of archeological journeys in order to be able to you know, play back all this old material. Well, I, I, I am sure I have that second draft somewhere. Um, I don't know that I've got a hard copy anymore, um, but, it, but it exists. I mean, it started very differently. It started off on a, um, on a, uh, a, a, a deep space survey ship and they come across, the, this is the second draft of Alien vs. Predator, that they come across a, a, a pod floating in space and and it's like well what is this and they bring it on board and then there's a cut and you see the ship floating through space and it's 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 wrecked and destroyed um and uh suddenly these three predator you know triangle scans go bong and scan across the deck and then you cut to the inside of the ship and it's all dead and it's in zero gravity and uh, you know there's books floating through the through the corridors and there's debris all around and the airlock hisses open and you know this blurred shape comes in and then this other blurred shape comes in and it's predators in in zero g suits um you know because one of the things that always 
annoyed me, especially in the Alien vs. Predator movie, uh, the Paul Anderson one, was, um, you know, predators are, are hot-blooded creatures, and yet here, we, here they are in Antarctica, you know, um, wearing the same outfits. I mean, they'd probably freeze to death in seconds. Um, so, you know, I mean, this is predators in space, and so predators in space would have to wear a spacesuit. So I had predators in spacesuits, um, which could have been fun, you know, and if mm-hmm. you think about the suits that they... Nostromo uh, guys, you know, have in, in in Alien, you know, they could have been these big Mobius-looking weird plated things. You know, you could, it, could, it could have been, you know, I, I don't even know that Dark Horse has ever addressed that in any of the comics. Um, so um, they come on board and they, they go around the, the ship and they find some bodies floating that are blasted open, and then they're attacked by aliens. And so, you know, uh, one of the one of the predators very stupidly kind of you know goes for, for the alien slashes it open and the acid burns through the deck in three dimensions and the ship rips open and they barely make it back to the ship and they destroy the ship and then they go back. And so it's, it's kind of a different beginning to the, the one in, in my current draft, which is sort of in a cave in a, in a rocky canyon. Um, and I, I thought it was a, a more interesting start to the, the oh. story that looks a bit, looks a bit bigger. Um, how did we get to this? I would love yeah. to have seen a zero gravity fight between predator and aliens. <laughs> but uh, but yeah. quick question about the second draft, because you allude to in the first draft about um, you see a, a predator in the alien hive. By the way, I love that you explained how the aliens create their own hive. But uh, mm-hmm. I was wondering in the second draft, did you did you lean more into what the chest burster would have been? Because I saw a, a Dave Dome. Dorman did like a, a like a sketch or like of what the alien predator would have been in the 90s and I wasn't sure if that was for your version or no it wasn't I I've, I've actually been curious about that that myself I have a suspicion it might have been for Roland Emmerich um, because you know, when I had sold the script to uh, Larry Gordon and Lloyd Levin Lloyd called me up and uh, he said hey you know, do you, do you know this uh, um, guy called Roland Emmerich? And I didn't know him at all. You know, he'd made, um, was that Moon 44, I think. Yeah. And uh, he did uh, Universal Soldier just come out. So he said, oh, he's just on Universal Soldier. And I knew of Universal Soldier. And he goes, uh, and, you know, I think we're thinking he, he might be a good director for it. I don't know what happened. I guess they went on and made Stargate, um, you know, I, I or... Or they just became part of, um, you know, it all got mired in the mechanism of the project going into turnaround when Joe Roth left the studio. Uh, but I, I would guess it's probably from them. I've always wondered about that picture myself as well. Well, you just alluded to what my next question was going to be, which was uh, how the project died on your end. Was it just that Joe Roth leaving? Yeah, I gather. I mean, I don't. I mean, you would have to go into to look at, at the reasons behind it. I'm uncertain as, as to what the, the the reasons of the friction between Joe Roth and Rupert Murdoch were. Um, Joe was running the studio at that time. He'd been running it for a few years, I guess, and um, and he left abruptly and formed his own company, Caravan Pictures, um, and then um, later would go on to make. Uh, later go on to form Revolution Studios, where ironically we made Hellboy, um, which is part of, I guess, part of the reason Hellboy ended up there. Um, but, uh, you know, Joe, Joe left, Peter Chernin came in, and it's that 
thing of you know i much like biden and trump i guess that you know or trump and and uh Trump and Obama that, you know, when you come in, uh, you know, you don't want to be associated with the projects and, and, and things that the previous guy had. And so you kind of, you, you kill him. Um, and that's sort of part of the course with studio heads, you know, um, development slates get killed, um, uh, you know, unless the project is already down the line because, you know, when the film comes out, you don't want to have to, you know, tell everyone what a great job, you know, you know the previous guy did of making, the biggest movie ever made. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, you know, you want to be known for your own stuff. So I, you know, I guess that, 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 that Peter Churning came in and it was a casualty. It, it died and they, they began the process of putting alien resurrection together um, mm -hmm. rather than alien versus predator. And, you know, there were uh, Sigourney Weaver. I, I, I had a, I've had a few falling outs impressed with Sigourney Weaver over the years because I get it. I, I get why. I love Sigoni. I think she's terrific. I've got a project I'd love Sigoni for. Uh, you know, but she's protective of Ripley. Um, but the Alien franchise is not the Ripley franchise. The Alien, you know, the Alien franchise should have been what the Dark Horse comics were. The Alien franchise should have gone off and explored different aspects of, of the character. And not, you know, it's, it's not Ripley's story. The, the movie is called Alien. You know, it's not called Ripley. Um, yeah, I mean, especially after so many movies i think it was great that we got I, I i know a lot of people hate alien 3 i do not um but i feel that initial trilogy was a nice tight story mm. into itself and that we should maybe have moved on i had several of the drafts of alien 3 at the time because i you know i was there on the set and i, I was getting um i was getting drafts from various people and so i got a couple of really different odd drafts of alien oh yeah 3. i mean We'll eventually do several episodes about that yeah. whole legacy. Well, that, I have a question. Oh, I mean, some, about of, it, some that. of it was very, very, very swiftly written. I mean, there's, um, there's like some of the characters at the end of Alien Three that one of the drafts was so, so, I guess, on the set written that a character's <laughs> killed and two pages later is still alive. <laughs> um, oh, wow. you, you know. Well, did you when you were there with Rennie Harlan? Did you know anything about his version at all? Because I always heard that he was trying to go back to the original planet they were on where they originally found the derelict um, no I, I i wasn't i wasn't privy to any of that i was just you know i was the interested fanboy sitting off to the side i was i was not the annoying screenwriter you know and love these days <laughs> oh yeah no worries. yeah no because that, that's one draft i cannot find anywhere and i've always no. been curious about what he was going to do with it because i mean that was back well, when he was you know on top of the well I, I you know i i've i've just been you know i spent the last um God, the last decade, um, putting together a, a project with uh, Gary Kurtz, the producer of Star Wars, and Ivor Powell, um, the producer of the original Alien, um, called Panzer eighty eight, which is a which is a it was a supernatural World War Two movie, and now it's mutated into a sort of science fiction World War Two movie. Um, but um, Ivor at the time um, was due to be the producer on Alien Three with um, with Vincent Ward and um, you know when Vincent Ward was fired uh, Evil left the project as well so but you know he remembers you know that entire frustration I mean we all know the Alien 3 stories I mean it was a long frustrating process and without doubt I think that the person who saved it was Rex Pickett um, his draft was was clearly the best and um, Charlie Lazaric uh, you know who's who's a friend of mine uh, Charlie um, you know, his, uh, you know, he, he'd been working with Ridley for, for many years when 
he did his assemblage cut, which is the you know the the good the good version of Alien Three, um, and uh, and and you know it mostly resembles Rex's Rex's draft, I think. Um, but there were some really curious things. I I don't know that that Hill and Guyler were the right people to really be attempting to write that particular draft because they you know they they kind of came out with like if you remember that the, the um. It was set on a, a wooden monastery mm-hmm. originally, Vincent Ward's draft, and and Guyler was was well, you know, we couldn't come up with any idea of of why it would, you know, there would be wood in there, and and I'm like, well, man, you know, look at Silent Running, you know, I mean, it's a, it's about ecology, you know, I mean, you know, maybe they're they're saving the last trees from Earth, and you know, they're they're cannibalizing the trees in order to, you know, it's stuff that if you if you were a science fiction fan. And you thought about it for five seconds, you could come up with a reason for it. Um, and I, I, I kind of, you know, I'm sort of glad in a way that, I mean, it's sad because I, I know that um, Gaila died recently, um, you know, but I, I, you know, it's just kind of really as well that they were not more actively involved in the writing of it, I think. Mm. Yeah. So how do we get then on your end from Alien versus Predator to Freddy versus Jason? Oh wow! Well, uh, I mean, uh, shall I fill in a few blanks on Alien? Oh yes, please do. Oh yeah, please. Um, um, So you know, the the movie died um, at at 20th Century Fox because of uh, of uh, Joe Roth's departure, and Alien Resurrection kind of you know went along, but it didn't really die. I mean, there was there there were factions within Fox that kept trying to to redo it. Um, I met a an agent from William Morris, uh, who was a, a who represented Arnold Schwarzenegger, and he told me this is this is in fact I only found out about this in I think two thousand seven. Um, he told me that you know that they were trying to retool the project for Schwarzenegger, um, and and I was like, but you know how 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 could you do this? You know, I mean, you know, he was he was keen, and you know, I I was working with well, I, I never I never met Arnold, but you know. Um, I was on a project that Arnold was attached to, which was Judge Dredd. Um, and, you know, uh, he, he, there was a, you know, he, he was very open to the idea of science fiction, but I don't know how you would do this. Would you do this with Dutch Schaefer's great, great grandson? Um, <laughs> if you were going to go with that story, I mean, uh, how, oh, would, you, how would you approach that? Um, but so I don't know, you know, I, I think that, you know, the William Morris guys ambition was um, overextending their, their logic really. Um, so that, didn't happen but you know the the interesting thing was uh again something i wasn't privy to um going back to about 2001 i suppose um out of the blue i got a call from my agent steve Kennis at william morris still my agent and he was like hey um can you go in for a meeting with um uh paul anderson's production partner jeremy bolt um and he's sort of interested in meeting you. And so I went in for a meeting. I, it was a blind meeting. I had no idea what it was about. And uh, we talked about various things. And he talked about Alien vs. Predator. And he said, well, where's the project at? And I told him, which was, you know, the project is at nowhere, really. Um, and uh, it I wasn't until later I realized that this was kind of, I suppose, an exploratory mission for them trying to figure out what was happening before they made their pitch for Alien versus Predator at the studio. Um, the interesting thing was that Fox's uh, option purchase agreement on, on my script had elapsed. So 
they had to go through the motions of buying the script a second time from me. Um, so <laughs> oh, I, wow. I got two paydays out of it, which was well, great. That's nice. <laughs> yeah. That's I guess they wanted to, you know, cross the T's and dot the I's and make sure there was no litigation involved. So, um, yeah, so I sold the script to them a second time. And then Alien vs. Predator came out, and I went through a whole arbitration on that with um, Shane Salerno, who was the uncredited writer on Paul Anderson's version. Um, and um, the, the one happy outcome of that was, thanks to an issue of Fangoria, I managed to get Ron Shusett and uh, Dan O'Bannon a, a, a story by Screen Story Credit. Um, and I got to hang out with, with, uh, with uh, Ron a little bit. Dan was very ill at the time, um, but was keeping it quiet. Um, and I gather you know, that the money from that helped his medical expenses. So that was... That was one good yeah, thing to come great. out with that. Oh, that's awesome. Um, uh, I was walking into Comic-Con that year because it was the, it was the year Hellboy was coming out. It was 2004. And, um, and I, I got the call that the, you know, of the, because it went through several different, it was a long protracted process. It was, we were down to about a week or so before the, the film was due to come out and the credits were not locked into place for it um, because, you know, the, the, there was this contested writers thing that I got pulled into. Um, and uh, I was walking into Comic-Con in San Diego and Ron called me and, and said, hey, I just heard from the Writers Guild and, and thank you. Uh, we got the credit. And uh, um, yeah, that was good. So just one, one more Alien versus Predator thing, just to fast yeah. forward from that, is, is um, something, again, I wasn't aware of, which was... Um, as I said, I, I was a big fan of, of special effects magazines like Cinefix. And when uh, Requiem came out, which Shane Salerno did write, um, uh, Cinefix magazine did their article on Alien vs. Predator. And if you have that article, open it up, um, because the Strauss brothers talk about how they were planning to adapt my script. Oh, no way. I got to check yeah, that they, out. They were, they, were, they, they, were, they were talking about maybe we were going to go, we were going to go shoot my version they didn't mention oh. me by name but they talk about it and um and they you know we ended up with the uh the pizza boy and the uh setting because <laughs> your yeah your script is has so much alien versus predator fights in it that it's like when you're reading it you're like oh man i wish you know but to go back to the dutch thing um i yeah. in one of the previous uh rodriguez drafts of predators mm -hmm. it goes the revised one it ends with um you know, because they're on the predator planet battling the predators after they kill the main bad predator the you know, um, a ship arrives with all the, the, with this new gang of predators and the leader of the predators takes off his helmet and it's Dutch. And he, oh, and, yeah. yeah. And so I'm, I'm thinking maybe that was the way to, the, for them to bring Dutch in the far off future. That's the only thing I can pinpoint it back to remembering that draft. Yeah, I mean, the only people I, I, you know, I've talked about this before, but the only people who ever wrote on Alien vs Predator were me, um, the John producer John Davis, I guess, probably sometime after about two thousand one, two thousand two, asked um, the Thomas brothers, who are currently in litigation over Predator, as I'm sure everyone knows, um, asked them to come up with an Alien vs Predator idea, and they did a treatment um, which we had at the arbitration, um, which uh, some of the details of that have leaked out. Um, there, there, there have been stories about other writers claiming to have been on it. It's all nonsense. You know, it was me, uh, the Thomas brothers, 
Paul Anderson and Shane Salerno. That's it. Those are the only writers. Do you remember what the oh. Thomas Brothers treatment was? Like their premise? Um, uh, it was, uh, I, I think, well, I, I think it's, it's already out there, what the treatment is. I, I, it's um, somewhat similar in, in some respect, but it's about a crash predator ship in Tibet, I think. And um, uh, there is a multimillionaire who's desperate to prolong his life. Um, uh, I, I've got to tell you, if, if there is anyone out there who's interviewing Ivor Powell, um, when because Ivor has just written a, a script, he, although he's a producer, he produced uh, Ridley Scott's first several movies, Alien, um, Blade Runner, Duelists, and he was produced on Legend and left the movie there. Um, he um, was working at, um, at Fox with Ridley at the time um, when prior to Jim Cameron coming on board. And uh, Ivor, nobody knows this, but Ivor wrote an Alien script. Um, and I've read it and it's, I, I don't really want to comment on it, but I think people should talk to Evil yeah. about it and ask him questions um, because it's, it deals with a, a pyramid uh, and, a, and a black protoplasm. Hmm. <laughs> and, um, and it's interesting. Was that before, was that? This was before around, around 1982, I think. Okay, oh, yeah, way before that. Too. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because I know the pyramid was in. I'm obsessed with Dan O'Ban and Star Beast draft, and yeah, all the stuff too. that <laughs> yeah, and all the stuff that was cut out of there. I just find so interesting, you know. Uh, but I totally understand. But I'm obsessed with that whole pyramid uh, angle. So I would, I would love to read that draft. And, and all the Ron Cobb designs. Oh yeah. Oh, I love it. The planetoid and the different, you know, derelicts and. You have know. you have you ever noticed that the um, the, uh, the the defiant, not the not the Wrath of Khan defiant, but the defiant in Star Trek uh, Deep Space Nine, uh, looks an awful lot like Cobb's original um, design for uh, the Snark. Oh, huh. I've never noticed that. I'll yeah, take a look at it. Later. And and it always cracks me up that the 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 um, the ghost in Star Wars Rebels is basically a narcissist. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah, I love Cobb's designs. It's because it's, so, it's he's, he was great. It was such a loss when when he died last year. I was, I was, um, I, I was actually talking to Robin, um, his his partner, um, uh, as she started selling some of his stuff on the internet, and oh. um, I, I kind of got wind that Ron was not very well, and it's such a loss because honestly, I think he's he's unparalleled. I mean, you know, I mean that I, I get really annoyed in screenplays with with nanotechnology garbage, you know, what I call magic, magic science, you know, where helmets <laughs> fold away to nothing and glass visors disappear. Um, but, you know, Ron was the king of real technology, you know, of stuff that looks like it could work. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was part of what made the first Alien, I feel, so great was just how definitely, even in the distant definitely. future and it feels like now when you're on the yeah. Nostromo. Um, Oh, yeah. No, yeah, it was a lot of that was also thanks to O'Bannon, you know, coming off of Jorowski's Dune, he learned that technique of using different artists to work on different things. And that's when I think when he had his first draft while uh, Hill was was reworking it, you know, he had like Ron Cobb working on one part, Chris mm -hmm. Foss working on another part because they wouldn't bring Giger over until Ridley Scott came on. And that's when they finally got Giger really officially on board. But, but up but, until yeah. that, yeah. 
Yeah, it was it was Dan, as I remember, that he he snuck a copy of Necronomicon in and, and shoved it under Ridley's nose. Yeah, and that totally changed everything. Yeah, because of the other derelicts they were messing with. I mean, they looked cool, but they just were weren't that organic, you know. Mm-hmm. Wasn't what we got, which is just so incredible to this day. As a kid looking at those Starlog pictures of the derelict and the space jockey god man it was just my imagination i can't even tell you <laughs> I, I i was i was always fascinated by there was a big uh, ron cobb book called color vision which had a lot of runs unused artwork from that time and um there, there was one of uh, the, the ship drawings that had uh, until we re- i think one of those drafts have only really um, surfaced recently which was one of the hill and guyla drafts where um they come across uh, a, a weapon silo um, and there was like a cylindrical, there's a Cobb illustration of a cylindrical weapon silo with a, with a ship with a big acid hole in it. Um, and that fascinated me as a kid. Oh, interesting. I don't know if I saw that, but I love his pyramid, um, his, his uh, inside the pyramid and then venturing in there and everything. And then what always cracks me up is that, um, was it Corman was going to do Alien Star Beast? And then he was cool to let them go off and do it with 20th Century Fox. But then when Corman made uh, Galaxy of Terror, he brings the pyramid into that. And that movie <laughs> has the same structure as the Star Beast draft, too. And, and of course, Jim Cameron is the, was one of the effects guys on that. That's true. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Such a trip. We're going to hit pause right here and pick things back up in episode two of our conversation with Peter Briggs. Thank you to Peter for joining us and thank you to you for listening. If you'd like more content from us, you should check us out on Twitter at Never Made Film or Instagram at Best Movies Never Made. You should also download the Electric Now app so you can watch video of our podcast and all the podcasts on our network. Speaking of our network, we'd like to thank everyone here at Electric Surge, including Bill Ritter and our producers, Mark Altman and Dean Devlin. Until next time, this is Josh Miller and Steven Scarlatta saying we won't see you at the movies. This podcast is a production of the Electric Surge Network.